welcome to More to Come, PW Comic World's weekly podcast on comics and graphic novel publishing. I'm Calvin Reed, Senior News Editor of Publishers Weekly and Co-Editor of PW Comics World. Check us out online at publishersweekly.com slash comics. All right. Uh, this week, we have the great pleasure of talking with Ellen Lindner, um, all-around cartoonist, uh, graphic novel author. Uh, she's uh, the editor of Strumpet, uh, that, uh, an international uh, anthology of comics uh, by um, artists who identify as women. Um, uh, uh, I'm only giving you a brief outline of her background, and we'll let her talk more. Ellen, thank you so much for being on More to Come. It's my pleasure, Calvin. Thank you for the invite. You bet. Uh, so I, I want to get you to, to talk a little bit about really your whole career. Uh, but you know what? You know, it's uh, it's baseball season. I'm a Yankee fan. Uh, you're a Mets fan. Uh, <laughs> there's sparks flying. Let's talk a little bit about uh, what I think is your newest project, The Cranklets Chronicle, a zine about women in baseball. I love it. I've read the first issue, uh, which you gave to me. <laughs> um, uh, I knew a few things about Joan Payson, but I know a lot more now. So um, tell us about uh, Cranklet's Chronicle and about baseball in your life in general. Oh, man. That is – okay. So I don't know where to start. So basically <laughs> – so Joan Payson is somebody who I am completely ashamed to say that I knew very little about until recently. Mm-hmm. Um, I had a conversation with a friend, um, about baseball. Uh, she, and she was just like, I just think it's really sexist. You know, like what is the place for (laughs) women in baseball? And I had a really hard time answering that an incredibly hard time. Um, at least on Mets broadcast, the announcers are all men, you know, it's only men who play. And I just feel like I wanted to kind of interrogate my own, uh, relationship with baseball. I love it irrationally. I just love it completely. And I grew <laughs> up with it. I mean, when I was um, growing up, we'd go to my grandparents' house in Queens every Sunday. And if there was a Mets game on, we'd be watching it. Mm-hmm. Um, my mom is a huge fan. She also hate watches the Yankees. <laughs> <laughs> well, you know, hate only makes us stronger, but go on. <laughs> <laughs> well, she grew up. It's, it's funny. She grew up. Um, a Yankees fan in Brooklyn. Oh, and part of the story it, of... That's disturbing. The, Go on. <laughs> it, it really is. I mean, she had a, a kind of peripatetic childhood. Uh, and um, trying to figure all that out would take an entire an entire podcast. <laughs> but um, it was so fascinating because once I started researching... Um, so basically, just to go back to Joan Payson, she is the woman who provided the financing when the Mets were founded to replace the New York Giants and the Brooklyn Dodgers, when they both went to the West Coast in one year, they went, they both left in the space of something like three months. Yes. Mm-hmm. And so New York went from having three teams, all of which were beloved. Yes. To having one, um, which I mean, the Yankees are wonderful. You cannot argue with their history. It is completely jaw dropping. <laughs> I mean, the amount of talent. <laughs> You're saying all the right things here. Go on. (laughs) (laughs) But, you know, um, it left a big void. Um, And I had already read Doris Kearns Goodwin's memoir Hmm. of growing up a Dodgers fan on Long Island, which is where I grew up. Sure. And hearing her talk about it was just so heartbreaking. And so between that and my friend's kind of comment, 
I started to do some research about women in baseball, and I came across Joan Payson, who is an she basically at one point was one of the wealthiest women in America. She is part of the Whitney dynasty. She um, her her family had been involved um, in American affairs of state for centuries. I mean, it's, she has such an interesting history just as herself, but she was also a rabid fan of the New York Giants when they lived in when they played in Washington Heights. And when you talk about the Whitney family, I mean, you're talking about, for instance, say the Whitney Museum here in New York City, uh, the great museum of American art. Yes, mm -hmm. precisely. And so um, I was living in the UK until recently, and I moved back to New York. And I actually live in um, the upper part of Washington Heights. Mm -hmm. so I got interested in it from a local history angle as well. And when I found out the contribution that this woman had made to New York baseball, because basically the Mets... Um, that when when they came on the scene, people just took them on in such a like a wonderful way. They were basically set up in a way that was guaranteed to to create a team that could not win. Sure, that's the way um, expansion teams were done in those days. But go on. Precisely, precisely. Every team had something in their contract called the reserve clause, which mm -hmm. meant that they could sign up the same player year on year. So, for example. Joe DiMaggio. Joe DiMaggio was never going anywhere because the Yankees every year had the chance. They reserved the chance to re-sign him. Free agency didn't come into baseball until the mid-70s. And so basically the Mets were old, injured players or young players who had never seen a Major League Baseball park mm -hmm. as a player. Yep. Um, but she persevered. You know, she could have given up. She could have just said, you know, this is ridiculous. I'm getting mocked left and right. But she loved the team and she kept on you know, supporting them financially. She kept on supporting them with her presence as well. She was their number one fan. And when they won the World Series, it was kind of this vindication of New York as a city and as a baseball center. Um, and I think it's just a, a fabulous story. Uh, but I also found out that um, I found out all these weird things, like weird connections. Mm -hmm. So I found out, so my mother is a nurse. She's a, been yeah. a nurse for her, for her whole adult life. And she was actually working in a hospital that Joan Payson founded. Interesting. During the 1969 World Series. This is also the hospital where I was born. Okay. <laughs> I, I know this woman a lot. <laughs> <laughs> and so I hope people will check out Cranklet's Chronicle. Um, I hope I told it in a way that will appeal to fans of New York history as well as baseball history. Well, I really, I, let's go on. I'm sorry. Go on. Oh, no, no. I really, I mean, because I know a lot of people, I, especially in comics, they're, you know, a lot of people, my writing partner, for example, John Allen, he, he just, he's just like, well, I don't like baseball, but I'll read your script, you know. Um, there well, are I've encountered that, that as well, but I, you know, to, just to, uh, just to, to just add a little more context to your story from a fellow baseball fan. I mean, I, I, I'm, I'm a longtime lover of the sport who did not grow up in New York City, but I grew up in Washington, D.C., uh, uh, you know, uh, um, basically mesmerized by New York. I mean, I'm, I'm a lot older, you know, I'm in my 60s. Uh, when, when I came of age as like a goofy sports fan, uh, sports fan New York was, was some weird shining city far away because they had three major league baseball teams. There was never a day in New York City uh, uh, where there wasn't a major league baseball game going. I, of course, grew up in Washington, D.C., uh, and I grew up rooting for the original Washington Senators. Uh, which, as you may not, you may or may not know, uh, the the joke about them was first in war, first in peace, and last in the American League. <laughs> and, 
So, uh, and in fact, they in the in the early sixties, um, um, uh, Washington D.C. actually got another team because our team left. The Washington Senators left. They moved. They be, eventually became the Texas Rangers. And I watched as Washington D.C. got a new team, and as New York uh, got the Mets. And all of this, I'm saying, all of this was a lead in to 1969 because the the Yankees were still. I mean, excuse me, the Washington Senators were still a really bad team. Uh, even after after the expansion team, maybe not quite as bad as the Mets, but they were still pretty bad. Uh, but uh, so I also rooted for the Baltimore Orioles. So in that 1969 World Series, which figures prominently in your uh, in Cranklet's Chronicle, uh, I was uh, rooting for the Orioles for the great Frank Robinson and and Brooks Robinson at third base and Paul Blair in the outfield against this mess team that was improbably beating them. So, <laughs> so that's so to be sure your book really connected with me on an emotional level just not not first of all because it's about baseball certainly because that you brought back that moment but i can certainly understand what you're talking about so often in the comics world uh i mean many of the comics artists i've encountered they have some weird troubling disturbing wound of uh from sports i don't know someone beat them up when they were a kid or something but they really don't like sports or they don't like the way American sports is forced on you, which is actually kind of understandable. But uh, you, you, you met your perfect audience in me, so that's it. I'll shut up. <laughs> if I, well, that Orioles. I mean, it just when I actually went back and listened to all of the games. Really, you are intense. <laughs> it is insane the amount of content that is on YouTube at the moment. <laughs> I mean, we watched, you can watch game five of that World Series, and unless you watch the games, it is completely insane that the Mets should win. That's, but there, oh, yeah. There's one outfielder in particular, Tommy Agee, who basically sure. killed himself to make it happen. He was just all over the place. And, I mean, the 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 Orioles definitely on paper we're far superior. I'd also, Calvin, you're very forgiving because um, Gil Hodges, who is the manager of that 1969 team, was basically stolen by the Mets from the Washington Senators. <laughs> that's true, yes. Uh, <laughs> you're being very magnanimous here. No, that's a, dude, that's a very good point because he went on to that. But, you know, it's interesting. The Washington Senators manager after Gil Hodges, do you know who that was? I don't. Tell me. Ted Williams. Whoa! <laughs> yes, yes. You know, probably the greatest left-handed his- hitter in the history of Major League Baseball. And actually, the the uh, no knock on Gil Hodges, but the Senators actually got better under Ted Williams. And uh, actually, as they said, I mean, this is a this is another anachron- uh, rather an, uh, 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 an an old-fashioned baseball thing. Uh, they finished in the first division in the old days. The the uh, you know when there were ten teams or around that, you know, there was first. Division teams, which who finished one through five in second division teams. So the team actually got better, and then it was yanked away from us uh, again oh, and moved no. to. Um, uh, uh, and actually, I said something wrong in my earlier history. That the first Washington Tenors, Senators team moved, and it moved to became the Minnesota Twins. The second Washington team that I grew up really rooting for. Um, it moved away. Was it in 1970? I think it was. They became the Texas Rangers. So, too much information. I'm sure for those non-baseball fans out there. But um, yeah, an interesting convergence. Well, I, I, 
this is the thing. Baseball is full of interesting convergences, and I hope to continue the series. Um, if I can just explain the title. Um, please, I, please. Yeah, I was watching the Ken Burns baseball documentary, with I, which I have a lot of problems with, but um, apparently a cranklet is a 19th century term for a female baseball fan. Hmm, interesting. Um, a baseball, A male baseball fan would be a crank. Right. Um, and so I, I want to kind of bring back this, uh, this crazy term because women have been fans of baseball since the very beginning. Um, for example, I, I never knew that the song take me out to the ball game is sung from the perspective of a woman. It's interesting. Yeah, I guess it is. (laughs) It's date night. Let's go. Yeah. And buy me something. I mean, then the unfortunate, you know, uh, you know, power relations of the time. Yeah, but I, I, I mean, stuff like that. It's just like, how is this not? And apparently, that that song would be shown in movie theaters, um, like early, very early movie theaters, um, with photographs, kind of still photographs that told the story sure. of mm-hmm. basically coming in, you know, coming in from the suburbs or coming in from a rural area, taking public transit to the ballpark, and then just having this adventure. And I mean, at its best, like going to the going to the ballpark is an adventure, um, and so I hope people will keep an open mind. I know that there is a lot of childhood trauma around. around well, well, just that the cartoonist can like really, you know, I, I you know Peter Cooper has a whole strip about being traumatized by sports. I mean, to those who may not know Peter, to a really wonderful cartoonist, um, and uh, I've I've joked with him that he says, "Well, I never, you know, I I never got the sports genes." I said, "Don't worry." Peter, I got yours, and, and, and I've got extra sports genes. But look, I, I I want to ask you a few more questions because Payson was really fascinating. I mean, obviously for women in that era uh, also, but she was also come one of the the richest of anybody in that era. But but I love the 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 parts about you know her her eccentric superstitions and superstitions uh, both for fans and for ball players are huge in the history of baseball. But she really had some extreme ones. Yeah, I mean, it's really funny. I think when you have an emotional relationship with with baseball, it's hard not to feel superstitious. So, like, for example, she had some where, you know, if she was eating a particular thing when the Mets scored, she would just eat that thing at every game, um, you know, just to kind of help the team out. They had nothing else to help them. They had no good players. (laughs) (laughs) But there was Um, even – what was the one you would turn your back to home plate if uh, a hitter was struggling? So it's almost like, look, I want to help you out. You know, there's a lot of pressure on you. And I've been at games where, you know, you're you're sitting there and people are just like, they're saying things like, get a hit, get a hit. And it's just like, don't you think this person is trying? <laughs> so I feel like she always had, like the Mets often talk about how she was this very mothering influence on the team. Uh-huh. A lot of them were brand new to Major League Baseball. They had never, they had zero experience. Um, and so, you know, she would um, entertain their families. She would send them baby gifts. Um, she would give them little pep talks. And, I mean, I think she created this kind of framework where even if they couldn't succeed, at least they never gave up. Yes. yes. And because the fans were, were rooting for them. More fans came to the polo grounds. So the polo grounds are the old – is the old yes. – I mean, for those who don't know, you, you should explain to them what the polo grounds is. Yeah, sure. So basically, near there used to be um, quite a large ballpark in Upper Manhattan called the Polo Grounds, um, and it, it existed in various iterations, kind of from the late 19th century 
onto when it was demolished um, to create a huge public housing project. I think the Yankees played there at one time, if I'm not mistaken, early yeah, on. The Yankees did because um, the Yankees, the, the predecessors of the Yankees, the New York Highlanders, right. also played in um, Washington Heights at what used to be called Highlander Park. And so when their own stadium was being constructed in the Bronx, um, they temporarily were the tenants of the New York Giants. Um, that's the thing. Like, all, I feel like, I mean, I grew up in the area. I should know all this stuff. And I was, I mean, I don't mean this in the Hollywood sense, but I was truly humbled doing the research for this project because I felt by the end, like I had started knowing absolutely nothing. Um, it's, I mean, you can just, this is what I love about doing nonfiction comics because you just keep digging and you just keep finding more interesting information. Um, but yeah, the, I, the relationship, you could basically see the polo grounds from the site of the current Yankee stadium. Mm -hmm, sure. Mm -hmm. And if you, if you're in Washington Heights and you ever, you know, there's, you can t still take, there's a, a staircase, um, which used to basically take people up to the polo grounds, which was on this kind of like high, um, outcropping called Coogan's Bluffs. So you had to kind of like crawl mm -hmm. up, um, and you can still go up that staircase um, and you can still like see across to Yankee stadium and you can kind of recreate this kind of, um, lost relationship. And basically the, the story of why the Mets are in Queens, um, is, is also a New York story because it has to do with Robert Moses, who is of course the so-called master builder, very mm -hmm. controversial, very controversial. He was kind of the fixer of New York city public works projects going from the thirties into the seventies. Mm -hmm. And he became fixated on the idea that the that there should be a ballpark in Flushing Meadows Park um, because it's close to freeways. It's close which to he was obsessed with. But go on. Exactly, he was for a man who couldn't drive. He was obsessed with cars, and um, basically, there's still a lot of controversy about um, whether or not he could have done more to help um, the Dodgers stay in Brooklyn because. I mean, that's an infamous baseball loss. Baseball teams move around all the time, but the Brooklyn Dodgers are still talked about, still missed. And, I mean, I actually came – I am not a Robert Moses fan. I have to be very honest about that. But I really feel like Walter O'Malley, the person who bought the, um, the Dodgers from the Ebbets family, I really feel like he felt like the big money was on the West Coast. Oh, um, he absolutely did. <laughs> oh, yeah. And so I feel like – Basically, to make his dreams come true, Robert Moses would have had to demolish a huge chunk of downtown Brooklyn, you know, historic buildings. Um, at one point, there was like a big um, kind of a big food market there, so mm -hmm. similar to what's currently in the Bronx in Hunts Point. Sure. Mm -hmm. um, he would have had to demolish a huge area in downtown Brooklyn. And it's not clear whether or not O'Malley would have stayed. Um, um, mm -hmm. Go on. I'm sorry. Go on. <laughs> No, I mean, feel free to interrupt because I, I, like I said, I'm still a neophyte with all this history. Well, you're, I, well, you, you, actually, you're, you're telling a, a well-told tale. Uh, uh, it, it, 
opinion in New York about that um, about that move, and including the move of the Giants out there as well. Uh, they were I, they obviously were lured out there by um, really enormous financial uh, opportunities, uh, and it was devastating to the people of New York City and to the fans of New York. In fact, it's funny. I think I think the Giants, New York Giants, I think actually still maintain like a sort of a fan base here. I believe after their recent, I mean, they dominated the World Series for about three or four years a few years ago. They come back to the city and do little presentations. Um, uh, and that's kind of heartwarming. But at the end of the day, and this is, um, this will, I'll probably get me some hate mail from the Brooklyn side. <laughs> you know, there's a whole new revisionist theory, uh, uh, revisionist theories about the move of the Giants into Brooklyn to the West Coast because people don't forget Major League Baseball wasn't played west of the Mississippi, um, until those two teams moved out there. Those two teams opened up you know, baseball to the modern era to make it a truly national sport and to spread Major League Baseball far beyond the East Coast um, area, East Coast urban areas where it grew and thrived. So on the one hand, uh, that was a revolutionary move that made baseball really in some ways into the global sport that it has since become. On the other hand, it was really kind of the worst example of a robber baron stealing the hearts of a community and just walking away to the highest bidder. So uh, listeners out there can decide for themselves which side of that issue they want to be on. Oh, definitely. And if I can just say one more thing about Joan Payson. So Joan Payson was a lifelong Giants fan, and it breaks my heart because she basically, by the time the Giants moved, she owned 10% of the team, which was not enough to kind of have any controlling influence, but she was the only person on the entire Giants board who voted to stay. Yeah. And to me, like, that is a true fan. You know, if you are willing to, I mean, granted, maybe it was easier for her. She did have a family fortune. However, she was dedicated to the city, dedicated to the team. And for me, that's what makes her such a compelling um, person in baseball because she's a businesswoman, but she's also a fan. Well, uh, I think that's a perfect, uh, it, it, you've, you've created a perfect tribute to her. It's really a delightful comic. Uh, I, 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 I know a lot of this history, but some of it I hadn't read it in many years. And, and it intersects with all of my own passion for the game. So, uh, I, I really love this. I assume this is going to be a continuing because really, I mean, it's a, it's a really fascinating, time and right now i think to be doing um research into the history of women's baseball there's some great organizations out there um it's uh, so so this i mean i think you're going to find a big uh, a big audience for this so i'm curious what's coming in the next issue of crank uh, crankless chronicle will there be another issue oh i would definitely like to do it as a series um i i'm kind of debating who to focus on next um but i'm really tempted by the story of a woman called Ephra Manley. Yeah. Who, uh, <laughs> Eagles. <laughs> yeah, who was the owner and the driving force behind a team in the old Negro Leagues, um, the Newark Eagles. Yeah. Um, and she is so compelling as a subject. She was a fashion plate. She was such, I mean, she was making deals left and right. She um, was black or was she? Was she not? Uh, that is so fascinating. That's another thing. She of indeterminate racial background. It is. But, so although my understanding is that she considered herself to be black. And I mean, like, I am ill qualified to have any. <laughs> but I can't believe that because 
you know, I perhaps wrongly assumed that she was that she was African American because you know she was inducted into the Baseball Hall of Fame basically when there was this um, large like finally Major League Baseball was like we need to honor the Negro Leagues after basically destroying them. Yeah. Um, and so they inducted her and a lot of the old stars, kind of I guess in two big classes. And so I assumed she was African American, but then I started to read her biography, and it's it looks like a, it's a little bit more complicated. No, it is. I mean, I had always assumed for years she was African American, and then I started finding out later that well, she seemed to sort of uh, enjoy being a little mysterious about that part of it. But uh, um, so I've I've seen accounts that sort of go both ways, but. Um, you couldn't ask for a better topic for an autobiographical comic, but I'll leave that up to you. Oh, well, I mean, I, thank you for your vote of confidence, Calvin, because I, I find her really fascinating. Her correspondence with the players on her team is so fascinating. She's always, because again, back in the day, you know, like there was, there was no players union, right. you know, all, a lot of these institutions that we think of as just part of the game just didn't exist. Yes, and yeah, so, um, and also in the Negro Leagues, it seems like um, players had a lot of options in terms of like, oh, well, I could go play in Cuba, I could go play in Mexico, and so she was always trying to retain her best players. But at the end of the day, unfortunately, she didn't have a lot of leverage, mm. and so she, like she is always negotiating. Unfortunately, knowing that the player can walk, but kind of doing her best to present this kind of formidable front. Mm. And I really love that about her. You know, she was always trying to do the best thing for her team. Um, and it's like, and it's also, again, the things I didn't know, it's really like the relationship between the fact that the, that the Eagles had their own stadium mm-hmm. have been huge. The fact that they had, um, I think it was called Rupert Park. Um, the, the fact that they had their own home was really big. And I kind of, I, I want, I want to kind of explore that more because this is another baseball history I don't really know that much about. And so um, I'm really intrigued by that. I went to the new Museum of African American Arts and Culture in Washington this mm-hmm. past year, and mm-hmm. their exhibit about baseball is really fascinating. And I, I encourage anybody who is interested in, in baseball history or American history to check it out um, because it's a very um, – when I was growing up, you know, you, you get a lot of people kind of patting the Dodgers on their ba- on the back for, for basically um, for signing Jackie Robinson. And that and Jackie Robinson is an, is an American hero. There is no question about that. But at the same time, Branch Rickey refused to acknowledge the Negro Leagues, and he refused to compensate them when their, their players came to Major League Baseball. And so, I mean, he, he gave a press conference and basically said they don't exist. Which yeah, the is- cutthroat business tactics of the time, for sure. Um, but yes, you're absolutely right, and I'm very impressed not only with your your cartooning, but with your with your your knowledge and passion um, about this. The Negro League baseball is one of the most fascinating aspects of, of American history you can dig into. So, yeah, I'm you know I hope you keep this up. Um, oh, well, thank uh, you. Uh, we, we, I'm going. I'm, I'm, I'm segueing because let me tell you. Once you we start talking about baseball, we could never stop. And <laughs> okay. certainly about the Negro Leagues. I mean, without a doubt, one of the most heroic periods in American sports history, with some of the greatest names and incredible uh, talents that did not get the the kind of national exposure that they should have all the time. But they were known and loved in the black community. Um, but 
I want to hear a little bit more about the rest of your comics background. Um, uh, so can you tell us a little bit about about um, uh, your your published books and about your work at Strumpet? Sure. Thank you, Calvin. I'd love to. Um, so basically, I've uh, written and drawn two graphic novels. The first is called Undertow, and it's basically about um, a young girl dealing with a, a, a personal loss in kind of 1960s Brooklyn around Coney Island. Um, and then I did a second book called The Black Feather Falls, which is a mystery set in jazz and jazz age London, um, which is kind of a, a whodunit that deals with the aftermath of World War One and um, has an American, basically an American flapper expat as the, the heroine. And um, they were both a lot of fun to work on. Um, but I feel like now, now, right now, like I'm really feeling nonfiction comics. I yeah. feel like mm-hmm. I feel like it's something that really is kind of drawing me in. Um, but I also love um, you mentioned the strumpet. Um, I've edited five issues of the strumpet. Um, the last issue I co-edited with um, Glennis Fox, who's a wonderful cartoonist, um, who I hope people will check out. I mean, although they might they might already know about her, she's won at least two Society of Illustrators Mocha Awards for her 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 various graphic novels. Um, and the Strumpet is a collection of work by artists who identify as women. Um, we we basically um, this could be cisgender women, trans women. Mm-hmm. Uh, we're just interested in in women's stories. And the last issue was um, it's a theme that we picked before the election, but after the election, it seemed all the more relevant. Uh, our last issue was themed around origin stories, sort of where people come from, uh, where the things we love come from. And I'm really, I'm really happy with it. Um, there's a wide variety of storytelling in it. Um, everything from fictional narratives to personal narratives. Uh, one woman wrote a story. Um, I mean, there's just like, there's so much stuff in there. Uh, Bishak Som uh, wrote a story basically about um, coming out as trans, which I think mm-hmm. is must read reading, if that's a, if that's a term. Well, it, it is. And, 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 and there's great humor in these stories, too. Well, I hope so. I feel like you, I feel like in storytelling, you always have to have that balance. Sure. Um, you have to consider your reader. Um, you can't just hit people over the head um, with an agenda, even if it's tempting. I'm always tempted. Um, <laughs> but, you know, you really kind of need to, to think about the person who's who's reading them. And, I mean, I'm just, I love editing The Strumpet because I'm always surprised by what people turn in, because sometimes these are people I know, and they'll still manage to surprise me. I mean, for example, Patrice Ags, who's a I was British going to mention that story because I love it for obvious reasons. <laughs> I well, she's so she's an American woman. She grew up in Detroit. Um, she moved to the UK. I want to say in the late '60s, early '70s, to attend art art school. And um, you know, she is. I I just oh my god, she is incredible. Um, well, the story is really wonderful. It looks to be like it's set in maybe the, the late 50s or the early 60s, uh, uh, you know, a, a black family getting ready to go on vacation on a drive. And I love it where they're asking, the father's asking for the Green Book because that was an old directory of where you could go when you were traveling in the South, in the segregated South, where you could go – that was safe, that you wouldn't be harassed or you wouldn't be subjected to, to racism places or, or, or people would just let you, you know, use the bathroom. 
Yeah, you could just have a meal as opposed to being told, oh, sorry, you can't have a room. Yes. You can't have a table in this empty restaurant. Yep. And you know what? That story reminded me a little bit of Shirley Jackson's um, The Lottery. Mm. Um, wow. Because you you it starts off with this this family. You know, everyone is very cute. You know, everyone is playing games. And then you realize that there's this very dark subtext where they're going on this vacation where they could be in mortal danger. Yeah. You know, they're from a comfortable middle-class African-American suburb in Detroit where they're treated very well, um, where they're able to be, you know, these kids are, are kind of innocent of the, the full extent. I mean, I'm sure they, they, it do, they do encounter racism in the course of the story, but they're, they, I think they might be a little innocent of the full extent of American racism. Yeah. And I mean, I've known Patrice for years, and when I read this story, it just broke my heart. Yeah. Um, it's it's really wonderful, and yeah, those those little details. I feel like that's why it reminds me of the lottery, because when she put when her father pulls out the green book, you're like, oh, this is about to get. Yeah. You know, they're going someplace where they could be not just unwelcome, but where it, yeah they could get hurt. <laughs> You know, yeah. something very horrible could happen. And so um, I'm glad you enjoyed that story because she is a, a cartoonist who I think, you know, deserves a wider audience. Yeah, and there's um, some wonderful drawings, too. I love the drawings. She is really, really incredible. But you've also got uh, Creota Wilberg in there, the, the wandering uterus. Oh, the wandering uterus. <laughs> yeah, I I mean, when, she's, she, when she had suggested that story, I... I mean, so she had published that as a mini comic and she asked, you know, would we be okay with reprinting it? And I was like, well, of course, you know, this is a story about, you know, the origin story of the entire human race. You know, we all come from the uterus, <laughs> but apparently the uterus has been extremely misunderstood over the years. And the idea, she talks about this medieval notion, which persisted probably until early Victorian times that the uterus travels around your body and that if you have a headache, it might be because your uterus is basically like traveling northwards and p putting pressure on your nervous system. I mean, this is completely bonkers, but people <laughs> believe this. And yeah. it's sad because, you know, there's still a lot of, um, there's still a lot of inequalities in women, in women's health and in women's healthcare. Um, there's, you know, there, there are lots of um, areas where women's health might not might might as well be in the early 1800s, yeah. and so I love that she's kind of pulling, uh, drawing our attention um, to the fact that there have been huge misapprehensions about the way women work. And I mean, you, there, this some of these are better known, like you know, hysteria being yeah being mm -hmm. known, thought of as an actual disease that you could have, um, but the wandering uterus again. The, uh, when you were talking before about having some humor, um, I feel like Creota's stories are just so funny, but so full of knowledge. She's, um, I mean, I don't know if your readers will be, if your listeners will be um, familiar with her. She is a, a person who, she's a, a massage therapist. She's a dancer. Mm. Uh, she's a, an expert in human anatomy. Um, and she has a new book out as well. And her books are amazing. Yes. So basically, um, within comics and illustration, there's this notion that you should just chain yourself to the drawing table. You should be able to work 14 hours at a stretch. <laughs> and then when your back is completely destroyed by the time you're 30, oh, well, that's just your bad luck. 
And Creota basically has created this system of exercises and stretches that helps people who have desk jobs, um, people who are whose job um, revolves around basically being stationary mm-hmm. and um, like leaning over. So anyone who's working on a computer, anyone who's working at a drawing table um, for long periods of time, she has this whole system um, that can um, prevent um, long-term injury. It's really kind of orthopedic best practice. And the book is called Draw Stronger. And uh, it's published by uh, Uncivilized Books. It's just out. And it really is, just as uh, Ellen describes it, it really is a, a really practical uh, guide uh, based on her her knowledge uh, and, and practice. I think she's a, a, a certified massage therapist uh, as well as a cartoonist. Oh, and she yeah. tells you how to basically – how to. Do, how to exercise, how to do what to make sure that you're able to, you know, basically work uh, on um, in, in a stationary situation. I want to ask you about another one because that I was really found interesting. Jennifer Hayden's uh, piece, Dear Deathless, about this drawing that was left to this somewhat forgotten cartoonist from the 1920s, female cartoonist. That was a really wonderful story. This is just, I mean, Jennifer is really the person to talk about this because it is so... I just can't believe this whole story is so it's, it's just like nothing I've ever heard before. Basically, <laughs> It's, it, I, it's, it's really crazy. She basically grew up in an apartment on the Upper East side. Um, and there was this drawing that the previous tenant had left behind, um, that her parents displayed. And it was a drawing by a New Yorker illustrator, um, who I believe is called Otto Suglo. Mm-hmm. And she was the looking little king. Yeah, and so she was looking into um, this drawing, and she discovered that the prior tenant, before her family moved in, was this woman whose name is Nessa McMain, and she created a comic strip, this really pioneering comic strip, um, about an Egyptian princess who dies, but then comes back to life and has all these superpowers. (laughs) Yeah, I mean, of course she's got superpowers. I love it. Um, But she she drew it. And the woman who founded New York Newsday um, wrote the script. Wow. And basically, there, I mean, Jennifer is a very gifted cartoonist. Mm-hmm. Um, she wrote The Story of My Tits, which is um, uh, a memoir about breast cancer that came out with Top Shelf a few year, years ago. Mm-hmm. And finding out that she lived in the same apartment that this um, really influential cartoonist had lived in just blew her mind. It turned out that they both, like, there are all these kind of weird intersections um, but she also apparently thought that the apartment might have been haunted by this woman at one point. <laughs> I mean, I really don't want to spoil the whole story. Um, but I believe Jennifer would like to do um, a longer form uh, piece about about McMain. And this is, uh, to go back to reasons I love working on the strumpet, um, it's kind of an incubator. Um, often people will kind of um, start a story in the strumpet and then kind of develop it further. So, for example, um, I've got a name drop, Robin Ha, who mm-hmm. is the author of Cook Korean. Um, she's a, strump- a past strumpet com- contributor. And Cook cool. Korean is a collection of um, comics that tell you how to cook all kinds of Korean food. And the first time she ever did a recipe comic was for the strumpet. Cool, because that's so, a cool book. I know the book you're talking about. It is an incredible book, mm-hmm. and I definitely recommend it. Um and it's just so great to see these projects kind of develop. So I'm hoping Jennifer will be able to take this forward as well. Um, 
But yeah, I mean, the strumpet is, it's just like a, it's a nice open platform. I'm not sure. I mean, at the moment I'm thinking about maybe doing a collection because there are women like Patrice and Jennifer who have been in multiple issues who I would like to reprint their stories and maybe interview them um, about their, their artistic practice, about their lives um, so that we can have something that can sit on a bookshelf um, that hopefully can be part of, you know, the historical record and also just a little bit more accessible than the floppy, you know, individual issues. Um, Cause I feel like, I don't know. I, I just feel like in comics, like there's a lot, there's always, there, there are these people who always kind of like sometimes like slip through the cracks a little bit. Sure. And I just kind of cheerlead for the people who I'm really passionate about. Um, well, Strumpet is full of, is really full of a really lineup of really, uh, uh, really delightful and fascinating cartoonists. So, uh, I think you should do that. Uh, but I want, we're, run, we're running down our time here, but I do want to ask you a little bit because, um, I mean, I mean, so many of the, I mean, the, the comics we're talking about are nonfiction comics and you teach a course as well, right? Yeah. So I'm involved with, uh, Word Up Community Bookshop, uh, Libreria Comunitaria in Washington Heights. Pardon my terrible Spanish accent. Uh, <laughs> and I know you're aware of, um, Word yes, Up. Yes. Because this is another, uh, convergence here because, I've donated a lot of books, and I just I just donated another big batch of books Thank to Word Up Books Up because I love that bookstore. I'm you know uh, I got to know Veronica Liu, who uh, I guess she's one of the people who started the store. She is. Uh, Veronica used to work for Seven Stories Press, and I actually met Veronica through comics as well because I was in the Graphic Canon, which oh, was right. kind of the sure. overview of world literature, um, and so I did a reading at the Bell House with Sandy Jimenez. Um, a million years ago, mm-hmm. and um, I met Vern there, and I was living in England at the time, but she did a little talk about Word Up at the beginning of the reading. Um, at, at the time, it was on hiatus. They were between locations, and so when I moved back to the city, I was like, I have got to get in. I have got to just like get involved with this place somehow. I'm so passionate about book, bookstores, um, especially because in that part of Washington Heights, basically, once you go above Columbia... There are no general interest bookstores. There's some other, there's some bookstores that like for example there's Sisters Bookstore um, in Sugar Hill that kind of focuses on African American mm-hmm. um, culture and literature. Um, but in the Bronx there's nothing at the moment. And so because we're on the one train, it's kind of easy to get to from the Bronx. Um, it's very accessible to Washington Heights. It's in addition to being a bookstore, it's a performance space and it's an art space. So there are always wonderful exhibits. Um, you can come and participate in an open mic. You can arrange to do a book launch or a reading. It's a wonderful place. And so starting April 22nd, over six Sundays, I'm going to be teaching a class about um, nonfiction comics. Great. So activist narratives, um, personal narratives, basically anything you want. All I want is for students to come to the class with an idea, and we'll develop it you know, over the course of the six sessions. Um, it's priced very reasonably because it's a community bookshop. It's only uh, $40 to participate. Um, and people can email me um, for information. It's just ellenlindner at gmail.com. If you Google me, you'll find my email address. And I would love to have um, as many people as possible because, I don't know, WordUp is just like, an, it's like this fun environment. I'd like to bring people into WordUp. And if I can just do one more shout out. Yeah, um, please. <laughs> doing an event 
Um, I don't know if this will be after your podcast um, happens, but uh, on Friday the, the 13th, uh, a huge event with Juno Diaz, uh, ah. the winning genius, um, because he has a yes. new kids book, Island Born, which if this it's is... a new kid, yeah, kids picture book, isn't it? It is. If this happens to air after the event, you can't go. That's fine. Get the book. I <laughs> get the book anyway. <laughs> delicious. It is so beautiful. Well, I, Le- I, I, I apologize, but but this is a sort of an advertisement for myself that I was fortunate enough. I think uh, Juno Diaz is kind of a patron saint of that of word up in some ways because I was fortunate enough to do a public interview with him up there at that wonderful movie theater, very near the store in Washington Heights. Um, yes, this was several years ago when he did that book. Actually, he did a book with illustrations by Jaime Hernandez. He is such a big part of the community. He grew up in New Jersey, um, but you can you you know you can see New Jersey from Washington Heights. It yeah. feels like he's he's such an important part of the Dominican community there. Yes, and um, the United Palace uh, where you did that other talk. Yes, yeah. It is worth a visit on its own. And that's actually where the event on Friday is going to be. It's an amazing, it's an amazing piece of New York that's been saved. <laughs> I mean, to, to walk into this movie theater, you, 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 it's hard. You have to go and see it. I, I can't describe the richness of the interior. It's incredible. I just think gold. Yes. <laughs> Do you like gold? Yes. It is just like arabesque medieval art deco yes. gold and, I, I love- and I, on this note i think it's appropriate in a in a in a talk to start it off about comics and baseball and it segued into uh the dominican uh republic which of course is a hotbed of baseball so um we're, uh, i'm gonna pick this point to arbitrarily you know stop here but really it's been an absolute delight uh talking with you ellen i'm impressed was i said before your cartooning and your knowledge and passion for baseball. So thank you so much for being on More to Come. Thank you for inviting me, Kelvin. Let's go, Mets! Yes, yes, let's go, Yanks! <laughs> Welcome to More to Come, PW Comic World's weekly podcast on comics and graphic novels. I'm Calvin Reed, Senior News Editor of Publishers Weekly and Co-Editor of PW Comics World. Check us out online at publishersweekly.com slash comics. Well, here we are, uh, live from the belly of the beast, the comics beast, that is. Uh, the MoCA Arts Festival um, 2018, an annual festival of indie self-published small press comics. And I'm here on the floor, uh, my second day on the floor, uh, with Pie Club. And that's Han Lee, Paul Lau, David Azari. Thank you for giving me a few minutes. Thank yeah. you. So, look, why don't we go around. Look, I, 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 I bumped into you guys at uh, a cab a couple of years ago. Uh, I love the comics. Why don't you? Uh, why don't we go around and um, just tell our listeners a little bit about what you do? I'll, I'm going to start with Han. Okay, uh, my name is Han Lee. I do a comic called Noodle Fight. It's about hip hop, uh, kickboxing, and drug cartels in the early '90s. And I've read it, and uh, I'm a fan. Yeah, yeah. Calvin's yes. been a big supporter. Yeah. Hi, I'm Paul Lau. I do a comic called uh, 2.0. It's a spiritual sequel to uh, The Net, starring Sandra Bullock, and um, it may or may not star her kids. Okay, all right. Hi, I'm David Iseri. Um, I've been drawing comics, I guess, since high school, but um, I've been currently drawing a mini-comic series called Pure Bad. And that's what I bought yesterday, which I haven't had a chance to read yet, but I will. So how did you, uh, can you you give us some background, I mean, like, 
you guys all from New York? You're all New Yorkers, yeah. or we all live in this Brooklyn, and we all uh, periodically meet over pie and talk about comics. Ah, there's and where the hence, pie comes hence in. It's the pie club. Ah, and, uh, yeah. I mean, we're all friends, and we all table together. Yeah. Mm -hmm. yeah. How long have you been doing this? Uh, about four years, I think. Yeah. Yeah, it's 2015. Yeah. This is our fourth episode. Yeah, yeah. 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 You all live in Brooklyn? We're all yeah. in Brooklyn. Yeah. Uh, Paul and I know each other from comics like way back in the day. Mm -hmm. where We actually met yeah. due to uh, message boards. We would post on message boards about comics when we were in high school. <laughs> and uh, somehow stayed in touch since. And, you know, I've been creating comics since we've been living in the same city of Brooklyn. Well, I tell you, one thing I noticed about your comics, I mean... All of them are very distinct and and unconventional to say the least. Uh, I mean, even even uh, Hans' books, which has a really kind of straightforward narrative, it's still elements are just sort of not like what you expect. You know, the, the female underboss, uh, the uh, the aspiring hip hop mogul. Yeah. Uh, I mean, basically, I'm just trying to mash everything that I'm into into one one story. Yeah. 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 <laughs> Well, your comic, which I read a long time ago, I got I got another one from you, which I was, was a kind of mind blowing. But you, I can't replay the plot. But oh, totally, yeah. Uh, <laughs> I uh, try. I've been doing a lot. Of, uh, well, back in the day, I was really into a lot of indie comics. Obviously, yeah. as this is Paul. Were, yeah. This is Paul. Yes, uh, we were all into indie comics as well. And um, I've always wanted to do like more of like an actiony comic. And uh, 2.0 is like my foray into that. Um, trying to get like my influences of like obviously Paul Pope and like others and like yeah. trying to like push them into uh, this uh, direction. Yeah. Well, I mean, one of the things obviously for me, I mean, I'm, I love comics in any form, but Publishers Weekly, we're a book focused, you know, uh, uh, periodical. So uh, I know Han has got a book ready to go. You seem to have one too. And Pure Bed there, that's basically a book. Yeah, yeah, it's ongoing, and uh, yeah, but there's more I'm to come. I'm, there's more to come. Yeah, I'm trying to collect it as it goes. Yeah, um, yeah. All right. Well, um, well, I'm keep. I got my eye on you, all of you. Yeah, <laughs> Obviously, I follow you around from show to show. It's always great to see you. Yeah. Well, it, it's really good to see you guys and to see your work. I mean, it really stands out in every way. Um, so look, I'm gonna I'm gonna wind it up, but I have to tell you. Look out for these guys. You're going to be hearing more from them in the future. If it's not me, it'll be somebody else talking about them. <laughs> so, look, thanks all of you for being on More to Come. Well, I appreciate it. Yeah, thanks, Tom.